The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is the newscast for episode 84, the week of... Uh, uh, September, would we say 17th? Yeah, September right. 17th. Halfway right. through the month already. Alex, good to be back. It's been a couple weeks. I know. Good to see you, Rob. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing fantastic. You're wearing a nice Broncos uh, t-shirt today. Yeah, I'm going to the Broncos game, um, which convinced me I should look like a Broncos fan. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Support my kid. My, so we're going to get to maybe meet a... We're going to some pregame thing, so maybe autographs, and I don't like, I want my kid to not have a experience of being with a person who's not helping out um alternately you could have dressed up as a raiders fan and different experience we had a different experience at the ball game yeah uh well before we jump over to the news let's go through some housekeeping as a reminder we have a slack channel this is your great opportunity to engage with the security community we've got 570 ish people that are pretty actively involved in, in all kinds of channels, lots of conversations going on. I think I've said in the past that I read all of the Slack messages and it is getting harder and harder for me to keep up yeah. and read all of the Slack messages every yeah. week. I don't read everyone anymore. I do I do make sure I clear them out though. So, so I can, if it's a long conversation about something, I don't necessarily read every message now. Yeah. Oh, Rob. Yeah. Uh, also on the website, we have a mailing list. So if you want to get the show notes uh, emailed to you, go ahead and sign up for that. And the website is colorado-security.com. Uh, we, we'd appreciate it if you would sign up, uh, get this podcast delivered into your inbox every week with iTunes or wherever it is you uh, get your podcast from. Um, of course, rate us and, and give us five stars if you appreciate what we're doing and, and let us know if you don't like it. And also, if you like what we are doing and think that uh, we're doing good stuff, we would love you to sign up for our Patreon campaign. Uh, Rob and I fund this out of our, our own pockets and getting that Patreon campaign going, let some folks uh, give us a little money to help with the, the costs associated. But it goes, it does go directly to the show. None of it goes into our own pockets. All right, moving along to the news. Uh, first is kind of a continuation of a couple different stories we've talked about. Uh, it's a new smart road story. Denver is testing new technology to improve traffic and safety. Yeah. So this one is actually, I think they're doing about a mile of road on Brighton Boulevard. Um, yeah. Just look at putting in sensors that are going to be able to track speed and other things like that. Yes. Yeah, going in this week, and this is CDOT that's doing it. Um, and this is only, mostly going to be used for seeing how fast cars are going. And uh, But part of this intelligence is it should be able to tell you if a car is going quickly off the side of the road, basically means someone's going to crash. Um, and the same technology they're installing will allow them to do things like charge an electric car or send internet connectivity through the road to cars. Um, they're just not using those features at this point. Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, we have had similar stories in the past uh, doing this on I-70 um, or other things like that. So it seems like the, the smart road initiatives are, are moving forward. Yeah, pretty awesome that Colorado is leading the way there. Uh, next, office space in downtown Denver is going to increase by more than 1 million square feet annually um, until 2021, I believe. Well, it looks like that's what, like three times the increase we had for the last 20 years or so, right? 30 years even. Yeah, I mean, it looks like the average um, over that time period was about 320,000 uh, square feet, um, which I'm sure some of those were, you know, may have been negative numbers as well, right? So in, in bust periods, you're you're losing some office space. and um, But now we're, we're getting much more office yeah. space. There's lots of uh, buildings being built downtown. Uh, it does look like it might slow a little bit uh, starting in uh, 2019 and 2020, but uh, still pretty cool that uh, there's all this construction going on downtown. Very cool. Uh, next story, we are, we're looking at what companies have grown the most in Colorado over the last year or so. Number one on the top of the list from a profit perspective is Dish Network. Um, Dish went from $40 million profit in the same quarter in 2017 to $400 million profit this year. Not too shabby. Uh, also, uh, almost what Dish got, Molson Coors uh, had a second quarter profit of $424 million. Um, DeVita was actually the, the number two most profitable company at, uh, what, $267 million. So doing, doing really well. Good stuff. Uh, also in the article, Crocs doubled their profitability. We talked about them not too long ago with uh, closing some of their manufacturing and other things like yeah, that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're looking to get more efficient, but they're, you know, as a company, still doing quite well. Exactly. Uh, the next story, uh, jumping in more to the security sort of stuff, uh, this actually is super interesting and sad at the same time. Uh, we have a story about a printing company in Denver that 
uh, has blamed their closure and not just like temporary closure, permanent closure on a ransomware attack. So Colorado Timberline, which is a five-year-old printing company, um, went out of business. And, and the note that they sent out to all of their customers and partners was, uh, we've, re- we've recently been plagued by several IT events. Unfortunately, we were unable to overcome the most recent ransomware attack. And as a result, this unfortunate and difficult decision was made. We greatly appreciate the support and loyalty from each of you over the years. So 100 employees lost their jobs over ransomware, it looks like. Yeah, uh, I think we, we hear a lot of times about companies having losses or other things like that. I, I don't know that I've heard um, of a company, at least with a name, you know, maybe sort of anecdotally, but haven't heard of uh, this much detail around a company actually going out of business and not coming back from yeah. a, a cyber event. The FBI quotes statistics saying something like 60% of small businesses that are hit by these ransomware breaches don't come back from them. Um, I had never heard a name and I'd actually asked the FBI for that and so far have not been able to get a name. Uh, it's it's very useful to now have a data point that we can share and say, look, this is a real thing. Of course, the more we get to see, the more we can talk about this, the more we can hopefully work on fixing the, the root problems here. Right. I mean, and we've also heard of lots of uh, events where we've had ransomware attacks and other things like that, um, uh, CDOT and City of Inglewood, where it's caused a lot of disruption, but definitely not going out of business. Yeah. So, well, so Alex, did you hear we've actually won a, a big tech company's HQ2 coming We're, here to Denver? We have. Yeah. I hadn't heard this. Uh, Carbon Black. Carbon Black is bringing <laughs> their HQ2. Uh, they, they're actually not calling it HQ2, but as we were ta- Alex and I were talking about this before the show, we... Um, we, it really does look like they're kind of bringing a second headquarters to Boulder. Um, their, their office they have right now can house about 150 people. They've got 84 in there now and going to get up to 120, but they're in the talks with the building to, to get another floor and really kind of maybe double the space there, you know, bringing it up to maybe as many as 300 folks yeah. here in Boulder. As part of the move, you know, they offered people in their uh, Boston headquarters the option if they wanted to, to come out to Colorado. And there was apparently a great response for people yeah. that wanted to come in and live in Boulder instead of live in Boston. I can't imagine why. Uh, but you know, seems like a good thing. Yeah. Uh, so this office here in Boulder is going to be focused on, uh, DevOps threat intelligence. Um, and they also have some engineering in there. And of course it is also the West coast sales headquarters. And actually, uh, one of my interns from this past summer got a job at carbon black and is now working in that brand new oh, office. Awesome. That's great to hear. Yeah. Uh, next, uh, overwatch ID announced that they raised another two and a half million dollars. Um, this is still, I guess what you'd consider angel investment prior to their uh, series a with which they're trying to do next year. Well, so congratulations to overwatch ID. Well done. All right. I'll take, I assume you take all the credit for that, Alex. It it was, it was actually my two and a half million dollars that I, that I put into the company. I'm glad glad you had that available (laughs) sitting around. Uh, so Webroot has a surprise, a surprising, uh, a, a huge, uh, press release this week. Huge. It's huge. Uh, they are announcing the, the with their 12% annual growth that they have uh, had yet another quarter of double digit growth rate. And this is the uh, a 12% for the year, but this is also their, what is it? Um, 18th consecutive quarter of double digit growth. You know, it, it's hard to keep up, Rob, you know, every quarter with double digit growth, you know, eventually you can't count that high, right? Yeah. And it, they, their business segment ARR, so versus their consumer segment, actually grew by 25%. So that's actually a really healthy tech growth there. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting, uh, Webroot, they target a lot of managed security providers now. It, you know, originally they were a sort of consumer antivirus or, um, you know, even any uh, enterprise antivirus. But now they target a lot of those service providers who then can either resell or, you know, provide on behalf of their customers. And they noted that they now have 12,800 managed uh, service providers using their products up that, from 9,400, which is a... That's, a, that's such a big 12,000? It's big. It's a big lot. Number. It's huge, as you said it's earlier. It's huge. Yeah. Huge number. Uh, so congratulations again to Webroot. I'm sure in another three months, we will have another story on their double-digit growth. Uh, next, Ping had a blog about uh, a guide to navigating the California Consumer Privacy Act. So for those that don't know... Uh, California passed a law called the Consumer Privacy Act, um, very similar to GDPR and sort of following on the heels to that. Um, this go- goes into effect in uh, January 2020, so people have a little time to get ready for it. But this blog post sort of summarizes what is in the bill. Yeah, it's it's really a lot of detail. We're not going to go through all the detail of it. Uh, I will say that what I keep hearing is there's going to be a lot of 
changes into the bill before it goes into law in January. Uh, but it's nice to know where we stand right now and we can start getting prepared for it. Exactly. Yeah, there was originally a ballot measure that got put on the ballot in California and lawmakers sort of panicked a little bit, I think, because that ballot measure was pretty strict. And apparently if you pass something through um, the popular vote, it is very hard to change it once right. it is in place. So uh, they went ahead and, and worked with the people that put that on the ballot to say, hey, if we pass something in the interim, will you take that off the ballot? Yeah. So they, they rushed within a couple of weeks, I think, to put this bill together and get it passed and signed. So it's probably not where it needs to be in terms of a, a final right. bill. Uh, but hopefully they don't gut it too much. There's kind of this balance, right? right? You know, we want exactly. to be business friendly, but we still want to be able to you know, start protecting the privacy of U.S. citizens as well. For sure. Moving forward, Optiv has a blog this week about the skills gap hiring when there are no people. Uh, as a starting point, you know, they, they point out the couple of stats. There's 747,000 open security jobs right now. Uh, there's a projection by uh, the Global Information Security Workforce Study that we're going to have 1.8 million open jobs in the next few years. Um, it's a lot of jobs. So I think uh, once those 747,000 jobs get filled, there will then be 747,000 jobs open because it's just going to be people moving to new jobs. No, right? there'll, there'll be you know 850,000 <laughs> jobs open because we keep opening recs, right? Uh, they So uh, the, this blog really goes through what are the things that you as a hiring manager, manager should do to get prepared for this. Uh, I like some of the points. You know, I'm not going to go through all of it, but as you're hiring, maybe rather than looking for you know a security analyst from another company, you could look at a different type of field. Look for someone who's got other technical skills, someone who's um, smart but maybe hasn't actually done security, someone who's uh, who's familiar with privacy or safety, something that's relevant but not necessarily directly the same type of field. Yeah, uh, they also uh, talked a little bit about how to keep people once you have them. Um, basically, making sure that they have good opportunities. Um, that you're getting getting them away from their day-to-day jobs, out to conferences or other trainings, um, incentives like tuition payments, other things like yeah. that. And then finally, they, they make a good point that if you can't keep up, if it's just too hard to hire, uh, it's, th- there's always outsourcing. And outsourcing is a, a viable solution with all the you know 12,000 MSPs that WebRoot partners with. Hey, do you know any companies that outsource? I, I think Optiv might be one of those companies that outsource. Do they, do they do that? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, next. Uh, Red Canary had a blog post. It was actually a Q&A on the MITRE ATT&CK framework and how to use it to mature your threat hunting program. So this is, this is kicking off a three-part webinar that they're going to be doing. So if you guys want to learn about how to use the MITRE ATT&CK framework, uh, take a look at that. It's going to be coming up here in the next week or so. Yeah, I think the Q&A was essentially a high level, you Build, know, before building you, up to the, building up into the webinar. webinar. So if you want to get an idea of what the framework is, what they're going to be talking about in the webinars, maybe some general ideas about what you could do. Uh, you can read the article and then listen to the three-part series and you'll have a whole bunch of detail. Awesome. Uh, so there's a coal fire, coal fire blog here uh, from OSENT to internal, gaining domain admin from outside the perimeter. And this is actually the third blog that we've had by the same uh, coal fire consultant, uh, Esteban Rodriguez. Uh, so a big shout out to Esteban. This is another good blog post. Yeah, the... The three that we've had have all been really interesting, um, and I've been impressed by all of them. This one in particular, you know, he talked about a little bit in the past when he was doing one of his early pen tests and wasn't able to to get any results, um, and then did some open source intelligence gathering. Um, you know, took some people and looked at their credentials versus or their uh, email addresses versus the LinkedIn breach, um, and then from there was able to to get some results through password reuse. Yeah, no multi factor. Yep, sons of. Exactly. So anyway, uh, it was a, it's a good blog, interesting to look at, and uh, good stuff from Esteban. We look forward to hearing more from him. All right. Thanks, Esteban. That is the end of the news. Moving over to the Slack message of the week. Uh, big thanks to Andre Gaeta, who is our, our patron for this and is, is the reason we are able to do this. Uh, Andre, we, we appreciate your support. Um, and this, this week? Yeah, this week, uh, we are, would like to recognize Chris Nickerson for his contributions in the Slack channel. So congratulations, Chris. He had a couple posts this week. Uh, one of those was a link to a, a downloadable Whois database. So, you know, if you are an offensive uh, security practitioner and you need to, or I guess even uh, defensive, um, and you need to to look up Whois, you can have this offline database so you can uh, help research better. And also a uh, link to some proof of consploit proof of concept exploits yeah. uh, for some of the recent Windows vulnerabilities. Yeah, thanks, Chris. We appreciate your your support in the community there. Uh, moving over to our event calendar, as a reminder, we do have an events section on the colorado-security.com website. Take a look at that. We go out through the end of the year. We might even be out to January now. 
Uh, first thing is this week on the 18th is the Ballard Spar Colorado Cybersecurity Summit. Yeah, and as you have heard over the last few weeks, Colorado Equal Security is co-sponsoring this event. Um, I will be there. I think, Rob, you're out of town. Uh, I, I think I could otherwise come up for a little bit. indisposed. Yeah. Um, and so there are three panels there. Ballard Spar obviously is a, is a law firm, so this is going to be a more, more legal-focused conference, but it's a half day on the 18th. I think uh, it'll be good, and people should definitely show up if they can. Also on the 18th, SecureSet is doing their expert series with Chris Roberts. He is now over at Lairs rather than uh, rather, rather than Calvio where he had been. Uh, also on the 18th, CTA is doing their Colorado Smart Cities Symposium. I, I assume you have to be from a smart city to go to this. <laughs> do, they, do they list which well, ones are available? Or maybe you aspire to be a smart city. Oh, that could be it. Okay. Uh, ISSA Colorado Springs is doing their September meetings on the 18th and 19th. That's going to be the dinner meeting on the 18th and the lunch meeting on the 19th. Also on the 19th, OWASP is having their September meeting. And if you want to swing directly from OWASP over to a, uh, a little bit less formal event, the DENSEC meeting is happening at Ryan House that evening. Um, also this week on the 20th, ISACA is having their monthly meeting, Top Observations, where suppliers are winning and confessions of a software auditor followed by a happy hour. I think this is their first meeting of the year, right? They, I think... I think that they took off the summer. Yes, so September is like so. their kickoff event. Yep. So that's a little bit bigger with the happy hour, and it, it's a good time to get to go do some socializing. Um, also on the 20th, ISC Squared is doing their September chapter meeting. That'll be downtown, I think, at the SecureSet campus. And then also on the, the 20th, OWASP Boulder is doing Building Patterns for Secure Microservices with Joe Gerber. I'm not so, sure if this is the same one as the Denver meeting or if there's different topics. Different, it's different. different um, topics. So. So I don't want to hear any excuses on the 20th that you don't have anything close to you, right? If, if you're listening in the Denver metro area, um, we do have plenty of events. Uh, we have the Springs. We've got we've got DTC, uh, downtown Boulder. This, this entire week, 18, yeah. 19, 20, jam-packed. Uh, on the 25th, so so next week are the CTAs, or excuse me, this is the Denver Business Journal's C-Suite Awards Celebration. That's the, that's the 25th. Uh, also on the 25th, the GDPR meetup group is having their monthly meetup, Encryption for GDPR Compliance, Fact and Fiction. Uh, NCC group is doing Cyber for Executives. I assume that this is like an Excel tutorial. I, I don't know for sure. <laughs> uh, something like that, Rob. Something like that. Um, the first, first half of the meeting will be describing what cyber is and, and how you can cyber. Sorry, that was a little, little jab at the word cyber. Uh, we have one uh, last meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on the 28th, SecureSet will be doing one of their ongoing Capture the Flag series. All right. Moving over to jobs. We have two fantastic job opportunities at Ping Identity. Number one, I am hiring a cloud security architect, someone to help us uh, build the security structure and monitoring around our AWS environment for a brand new product that we're creating. Uh, number two, we're hiring a knock sock manager, and it's it's called an SRE manager on the website, but it is it would be managing our twenty four seven knock sock. Uh, Cray is looking for a chief security architect, so if you want to secure supercomputers, you should check that out. Sounds so awesome. That does it sounds really cool. I bet you have to know some stuff that you and I don't know. Uh, probably just a little bit. <laughs> probably a little bit. All right. Uh, Staples has a couple of interesting positions, and I heard from their the head of their AppSec program. They're hiring a senior application security architect. And they're hiring a senior cybersecurity application engineer. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Uh, Spectrum is looking for a senior manager of network security operations. Booz Allen is hiring an analyst around information systems security senior. Interesting. TIAA, no longer CREF, is looking for a lead info security analyst. NREL is hiring a cybersecurity research engineer. We just met the, the CISO over there, Desiree Robinson. Yep. She seems like a good person. She's building a good team out. So it looks like a fun opportunity. CoreSight is looking for a vice president of IT and digit. That's a tough word. Digitization. And CoreSight's actually the same building as me. So if you get this job, let's go get lunch. Sweet. And our final job is with MUFG, MUFG, uh, for a senior enterprise architect director. It's a director level position. Um, I'm sure that that has a completely legitimate um, meaning to that acronym, yeah. uh, but when you read that, it sure sounds like something bad. Uh, so it is the first word is Mitsubishi. I know uh, I remember okay. that, but I don't know what the rest of the the words are in the acronym. Uh, well, that takes us to the end of the news, Alex. Our feature interview this week. You sat down with Nancy Phillips, who is the new CISO over at Centura Health, previously at Datavale and previous to that at Kaiser, right? 
Yeah, exactly. I had a nice conversation with Nancy. Uh, we talked about her career, things that she's doing. Uh, should be a, a very interesting interview for folks. All right. Well, thanks again. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob. This is Sue LaPierre, CISO at Pelagis. This is Colorado Equals Security. For Colorado Security Professionals, by Colorado Security Professionals. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is Alex Wood, and I have a feature interview today with a very special guest. Um, I'd like to welcome Nancy Phillips. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Awesome, appreciate you taking a little time to talk with us today. Absolutely. So we've known each other for, I don't know, a long time now. Yeah, quite a um, few years. But I'm sure there's a few people out there that don't know you. Mm -hmm. So why don't we start by talking about uh, who you are? Hmm, who I am? Boy, that's a good question. So um, from a career perspective, I'm now the Chief Information Security Officer for Centura Health. Awesome. Which means, uh, you know, a long history of uh, jobs and stops along the way to, to get to here. Um, so I started out, as many of us have, in the uh, military intelligence community. I was in the Air Force for about nine years. Nice. Um, doing intel type work. Where were you based? Um, I was based in Japan. I was based in Las Vegas, Nevada during the days of the um, 117 unveiling. Okay. The, the uh, stealth fighters, right? Nice. And then um, Syracuse, New York, Rome Labs. So another area of, of interesting intel type work. And when you were there, this is military intelligence, not what we think of, you know, like a security intelligence or or information security kind of stuff. Right, before information security yeah. was really information security, right? right. Um, so um, there wasn't a cybersecurity force as of yet. Those things were just starting as I was uh, coming out of the service. Um, so I was doing traditional military intel. They called it electronic intelligence work. Um, a lot in the satellite arena is kind of what I focused on. Nice. So, yeah. Which was an interesting background because, you know, at that time we were doing a lot of de development of tactic and techniques um, against our adversaries. So, created that mindset that made it easier to apply how to protect, right, against an adversary. If at one time you had that adversarial mindset, right, right. it's easier to kind of figure out um, how you want to protect against those things. For sure. Mm -hmm. So then, uh, at some point, you obviously got out of the military. I did. And, and you had to figure out what you wanted to do with yourself. Yeah, yeah. I did like most and went right into defense contracting. Okay. Right? So took off my military clothes, put on my civilian clothes, and became a contractor doing very much this, the same type of work. Um, and that's what got me out to Colorado, actually. I went and worked down at the Space Warfare Center, at the time Falcon Air Force Base, which is now Schriever Air Force Base. Um, so I did a lot of the same work there and uh, continued my education and finished my bachelor's degree in computer information systems management. And so I had an opportunity to help another side of the organization. So I was on the clearance side, the top secret side of the house. I went to the secret side to help them prep for an audit. And uh, that's because I was able to get hands-on keyboards and change directory permissions and file settings and all that other kind of stuff to make sure that the system was locked down before the auditors came. Um, while going through that process, the guy that I was helping out said, hey, you happen to have a knack for this. Would you like to learn about cybersecurity? And so that's kind of how I made that transition from doing the defense contracting work into the cybersecurity work. And when was that? How long ago was that? Ooh, that was back in, I would say about 95, 96 time frame. Okay. Um, so did that for a little while, actually for the space, for Air Force Space Command. And it, here's an interesting story. Uh, we developed, because uh, we did a lot of security awareness training for the Space Command bases around the United States, and we developed a traveling hacking demo Ooh. to do security awareness. And so we brought three laptops where uh, my boss, 
was the bad guy and I was the good guy and we had our mail server and we took somebody's business card and did you know the, the typical what you could learn from and hack and how you can hack into systems um, just based off of information from a business card. Nice. And when you say laptops, were these still like, you know, as big as a pizza box and like, you know, <laughs> right. like 50 pounds? And yeah, my cell phone was a brick at the yeah. time, too. <laughs> yeah, so we did that. But um, we got an opportunity with all of that to actually um, give that demo at one of the very first InfraGuard um, meetings at Case Western University. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, almost from the beginning. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So you did that for a little bit, and then mm -hmm. where did you go next? Um, then I came up to Denver, because I was down in Colorado Springs, and started you know, transitioning out of the, the contracting world into the, to the corporate world, uh, commercial world. Uh, went to work for a, a small up-and-coming boutique security consulting firm uh, called Denver Tech Labs at the time. Yeah way okay. back in those days, yeah. which eventually became Inspirix, which eventually got bought by Cyber. So, you know, worked for Cyber um, in, in their consulting organization as well. So did a lot of consulting work uh, through that whole period of time. Um, and then eventually started working for some of the folks we were consulting for. So went to work over at First Data. Um, we consulted at First Data and helped build the security around the electronic federal tax payment system. Had to brief the IRS on why it would be okay to accept tax payments over the internet. Nice. Um, and then eventually went back at First Data and helped, you know, do another round of improvements and actually work for them on that system um, initially. And then eventually came over to um, work. Uh, the sock side of the house. So the other thing during my whole career, especially in the consulting side of things, was de developing security operations centers. So either managed security services or, or building out SOCs for organizations. So I did a lot of those. I probably built about four or five SOCs in, in my stint between you know, doing that and, and then starting to work in the corporate space. Nice. Mm -hmm. And so you spent some time at First Data, mm -hmm. and then you left there. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up over at Kaiser Permanente, which was my initial step into the healthcare yeah. arena. Yeah. Um, which was a really fun time to be at Kaiser. Um, where, where you also helped build a SOC. Where I also helped build a SOC, and I would have to say probably my, you know, pinnacle of socks is the one over at Kaiser. Um, not only did we get to build, you know, the process, the people, and the technology, but we also got to do a physical sock build, which was the first time people, somebody actually gave, gave me money to say, you know, go build a facility that houses people that pay attention to security events. It wasn't like, uh, hey, we want you to have a sock, here's a closet. Right. F figure out how you, how you can shove a dozen people in here. Exactly. Which is, you know, typically how that goes, right? Yep. Um, the poor people that are, you know, in the dark, dank areas of the data center. Um, no, this was actually a very uh, polished facility that became a show place for the organization. Um, so that was fun. Um, Along came with that, which I didn't really realize was a, was a bunch of tours. So right. half my job was building the sock, guide. and the other half was tour guide. But it was fun because um, you know we were able to do to to really give the organization something to touch and feel and see when it comes to this magic called cybersecurity. Right. And and the byproduct of actually building that physical sock, which we really didn't realize, was the awareness that it raised in the organization, um, which then allowed us to have really meaningful conversations a little bit easier when it came to talking about security and the improvements we wanted to make and why we wanted to make those. So so that was a lot of fun. Um, and like I said, and, and, it, and we really kind of built um, what I would call the SOC 2.0, or what people have been calling SOC 2.0. It's probably on our third generation now with the AI and everything else, but we were looking at, instead of having level one, level two, level three type analysts, we were looking at building expertise 
in the kill chain. So uh, early warning or threat intelligence, um, exploits, malware, ransomware type teams, lateral movement teams, and then data exfil teams. And the reason we did that, right, is to give us eyes on the same type of data at different times within that process so that we had a better opportunity of catching um, things when they were going bad. Nice, and I'm sure if it was a, a SOC 2.0, it had to have a fancier pew-pew map of, of the attacks <laughs> going from, from you know, you here to there, and you know. I tell you what, right? That traditional map is a, is it's golden. A, you just can't you argue can't have that. Can't a sock without a pew pew map. No, you cannot have a sock without a pew pew map. And half the time, because we did put up the pew pew map, right? People would just sit there and stare at it and start asking a lot of questions. And yeah, it was always a good co topic of conversation. Yeah, seriously though, with you know, you said that you're you built this, you know, sort of as a next generation. What, uh, what were some of the things that you learned along the way that, that you put into this next generation of SOC that, um, that you had kind of thought, oh, I always want to do this stuff, and so now you had a, a chance to, yeah. to kind of do some of that stuff? I think um, just having a lot of experience you know, on the operation sides of things, um, it was an opportunity to really put in all the hooks at the beginning. And when I say hooks, those are really kind of the things that allow us to measure metrics. You know, I hate to say it, but right, uh, a lot of those things are important, not only from an effectiveness standpoint um, of the people, but of the processes and making sure that we had um, automated workflow that supported how the people worked versus trying to force the people into an off-the-shelf workflow. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time really kind of developing that out because there are so many integral parts um, to that life cycle of an event when it comes into the SOC, right? Because you have the analysts trying to determine whether it's something of importance or not. That often gets escalated to multitude of teams. Even once it gets escalated and contained, you still have to do that feedback loop and make sure it got remediated to completion, that it got remediated across the organization, that the lessons learned and the root cause got fed back into the system. And then when analysts were looking at things and realizing that maybe the rule that triggered you know, wasn't quite what they wanted, well then there was that feedback loop that went into the teams that actually tuned those rules or generated the content or made the dashboards. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we were really able to put in workflow automation to allow all of those folks to touch things, um, but also expedite the fact that they could react and, and move at a greater speed instead of just traditional ticketing and stuff like that. Um, and then the benefit of all of that is, you know, that's all contained within a database which you can run any type of reporting and metrics from, which is very helpful when you're doing a lot of tours and answering a lot of questions. Right. Um, it just made life a lot easier um, so that we could just kind of be able to answer those in a heartbeat instead of, you know, taking a lot of people off of what they do on their daily job to answer the questions that the executives are yeah. asking. That's always the worst when you have to stop people from doing the work that they need to do so that you can report on the work that they're doing, right? Because right. you have to be able to report on it. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't have some of that stuff built into the process itself, then it's its own process for those people to come up with that stuff. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's no fun for anybody. Yeah, so that was something along the way, like if I ever got a chance to do it from the ground up, we'd do that. And we yeah. did that. and it, it was magic. It really was, especially too when the auditors would come in, right? We yeah. could we could tell a story or show a dashboard for every question that they ever had, um, and it just showed the maturity level of, of what we were doing. Obviously, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. So if if somebody was going to start their their security operations practice within their organization, um, maybe they don't have the the resources and people and uh, the budget to build out a, a fancy room mm -hmm. um, like you got at Kaiser, but what are a couple things that you would say that where people should start? Yeah, interestingly enough, I'm going through that process myself, so what would I tell myself? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you know, 
you really kind of have to assess, you know, what what's important to the organization. Um, what I put in at Kaiser fit for what Kaiser was doing. Now, would I put in that same thing at Centura? No. Um, did I put the same thing in my previous organization at DataVal? No, right? So it's really kind of just assessing what makes sense for the organization. Um, based on, you know, what technologies you have in place today, what are the skills of the people that you have in your organization, and then trying to assess those gaps um, to kind of, you know, give you that determination of, you know, which way should you go. Um, I've been in organizations, my last organization, um, you know, we just didn't have the team, the staff, the wherewithal, right? So outsourcing to a third-party provider made sense. Um, you know, where I'm at now, you know, we're making that judgment and going back and forth. You know, do we build the team in-house or do we outsource at level one? You know, I, I understand from a very big, complex organization, how it makes sense to often build that in-house, but if your organization isn't as complex and there's a little more um, maybe simplicity to the architecture, maybe you don't have to. So I'd just say it's just really doing that assessment and trying to right-size for the organization based on risk tolerance, based on current investments, based on people and the maturity of the organization. So, so um, we kind of, we stopped short a little bit on our, our tour of your career. So, <laughs> um, and you just alluded to it there a little bit. So you, you left you left Kaiser and you went to DataVale. Mm -hmm. Maybe talk a little bit about that and your experience and then. Yeah, so Kaiser, I, I went in as a principal, um, not managing, and left as the deputy CISO for yeah. the organization, right? That's awesome. Um, and, and that was just a matter of um, just continuing to work hard and, and you know, driving and producing, and right? And being good, you know. You're I, I think, you know, having done security for a long yeah. time, it allows you to be able to be very calm in situations, which then tends to you know, help when you're in those leadership positions, so. Yep. Um, and then I went to DataVal. So DataVal was the full-on CISO role. Um, managed services company that does database management and other data management services for organizations. I've been in managed services organizations before, so certainly understood um, the challenges of what they were trying to do because they're working with a whole bunch of customers right. and working on their very oftentimes protected information, their databases and their data stores, um, helping those organizations get the value out of those, right? Um, and our job was to make sure that um, we did that in a secure manner and we didn't introduce any um, issues into our customer environments. Um, so. The, the interesting thing going from healthcare, where you have a lot of people that are caregivers and not ne necessarily technology people, to a company of almost you know a thousand technologists, uh, right. definitely different organization, different priority, different needs. Um, and like we said, you know, they we were our infrastructure. We didn't produce applications at the time. We were just connecting into other organizations. So our concern was really on how we accessed our customers and make sure that we did that in a secure manner. So things like jump posts and golden images and making sure that we stored customer credentials in a very secure manner. Uh, things of that nature were more important. Um, so when I was talking about, you know, it made more sense maybe to do level one outsourcing or to do um, 24 by seven outsourcing for that organization versus, you know, building something in-house for what we did. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, so you left there um, mm -hmm. recently and started at Centura to run their program there. Yeah, so I've been at Centura about four months now. Um, so we've just wrapped up as, you know, you would coming into an organization and uh, doing the assessments. We brought in third parties to give us an understanding of our maturity. Um, and so now we're putting together those roadmaps and, and starting to socialize um, the transformation that we're gonna undergo at Centura. 
Um, our organization as a whole is trying to transform, is transforming, right? As our consumers are more um, mobile, on demand, you know, wanting information to their health right. data, wanting to share that health data, you know, how do we as an organization start to enable that but do that in a secure manner? So that's my challenge is to make sure that we can give our patients you know, the transparency that they want, but ensure the pr privacy that they demand all in the same, all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a funny dichotomy, right? Because mm -hmm. people want their information to be secure, but then they're also willing to, to give it to a lot of other people if they feel like they're getting something from it. And then, you know, from your perspective, you, you have some pretty strict regulations with HIPAA on what you can and cannot do and um, I know that sometimes people get frustrated mm -hmm. with, um, I'll say, the limitations that that puts on, on some of the things that, that a provider can do. Right, right, yep. So, um, and being responsible for that, for all of it, right? Um, from a compliance standpoint, you know, from uh, supporting the infrastructure standpoint to try and figure out, you know, how are we going to be able to, to move into this digital healthcare age um, in a way that doesn't pose too much risk to our patients. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot to think about. Yeah. And so you've been doing a lot of assessments, mm -hmm. um, but things are going well, mm -hmm. getting your feet under you. Yeah. Yep. Getting feet. We had a lot of transformation. There was a lot of senior leadership change. Um, so I'm coming in with you know, new CEO, new CIO, and now a new CISO, right? right. Um, so this wave of change, which I think is really positive um, because um, there's some exciting things going on at the organization. There's some operational um, just uh, consolidation, right? Becoming one organization um, with many hospitals instead of many hospitals under one umbrella. Um, so that offers us, from a security standpoint, the opportunity to kind of put in some checks and balances and controls and governance and things of that nature as we kind of build some centralized processes where before they might have been disparate processes. Yeah. Um, so, so that's fun. And then just working, you know, the digital transformation in, in healthcare and what does that mean, right? It means, you know, um, allowing people to, to do some interesting analytics um, to produce uh, information, you know, at our providers' fingertips um, to help them make better decisions about the care of their patients. Um, it's also, you know, providing patients access to their information and allowing them to share it in a way that they prefer to share it versus yeah. any other way, right? But still giving them the tools to maybe retract that sharing at some point, right? So how, how are you able to do all that stuff? Um, you know, being able to, to do the compliance piece, who touched the data and when, and what did they use it for yeah. and how did they use it, right? Um, you know, maybe there's some opportunities for some ledgering technologies and stuff like that um, that we're looking into to be able to kind of provide that um, pedigree or, or credibility to where that data trail went. So, um, so we're looking at stuff like that. In addition to, right? taking a team and kind of changing it up a little bit from um, more of a compliance approach to more of a risk-based approach, um, right? You've got limited yep. resources and you really need to make sure that you're taking care of the things that, that put the business at, at the most amount of risk. Um, going from just traditional worrying about um, the, the infrastructure of security and learning how to be consultants to the business and the organization about security and integrating security. So, you know, helping the team um, move from just being implementers of the technology to, to be being consultants to the business. So we're working through all that now. Yeah, and that's um, something that's super important, especially in, in that kind of environment as, you know, when we were at Kaiser, that was sort of one of the roles that, that I played there. Mm -hmm. and. You have, uh, you know, Kaiser was always pushing the envelope in terms of technology and things that they wanted to do. 
and you definitely had to have your finger on the pulse of everything that was going on mm-hmm. uh, so that you could partner with those people in the, the different technology and business areas uh, because they want to, you know, they see this digital transformation coming and they want to move fast mm-hmm. and, and you can't be the one that's holding them back. Right. You know, you, you have to be pointing out the risks that are there and helping them to put those risks uh, at the right level and put the proper controls in place so that, you know, they can move forward with what they're doing uh, without essentially stopping them from, from doing that stuff because, uh, you know, it's, you're losing your edge, right? You're, right. You're not going to be number one in the market. You're not going to be, you know, Give and, that stuff to the customers that they want if you're holding them back. Yeah. And and in healthcare right now, that's a dangerous place to be is not at the leading edge, right? Right. Um, with with the state of healthcare in the United States and all those other business drivers that says that we really need to be working hard to stay relevant. Yeah. I, and, the, you know, obviously the medical side too, right? It's You always have to uh, play nice and make friends with, with the folks that are actually doing the care. Mm-hmm. Um, because if they're not on your side, uh, there's always that patient care trump card that, that's gonna essentially override whatever it is that you wanna do, right? So if yeah. if you can't get their agreement on stuff, um, they're gonna say, sorry, this affects patient care. We're, we're not gonna put your security control in. Yeah, yep, it's it's definitely, that's a, that's a whole interesting another piece and part to, to healthcare that I think a lot of organizations do not face is, you know, the, Right, our first priority is obviously patient care, and when we talk about putting in security controls and locking things down and, and having issues and wanting to you know, contain that issue, well, you really have to think a little bit about what's on the other end of that IP address. Right. Right, because it's not just a laptop in most cases. Yep. It's a laptop that's connected to some system that's you know, monitoring a patient. Yep. Um, and therefore, you know, the traditional things that you would be used to doing, you know, you have to think through it a little bit differently in healthcare. Yeah. When someone is has to access a computer in um, a surgical room, you know, while they're scrubbed in and wearing gloves, mm-hmm. um, they're not going to be really happy with you if the computer gets locked out every five minutes and they have to, you know, enter their 20-character password. That's right. Um, but, you know, all of a sudden they're going to have to you know, take all their stuff off, go scrub back in, get back to where they were. And yep. yeah, you gotta have, you gotta think about that kind of stuff. You do have to think about that stuff. And that's where that risk-based approach comes in, right? Yep. Because when you look at ORs and you talk about screen timeouts, yes, we would like them to be five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but to your point, right, they can't be. Because the last thing you want is your doctor looking at an x-ray while he's doing surgery on your back and have that x-ray disappear. Right. It's the last thing you want. Yes, I, I do not want that. <laughs> I, so, you know, when you look I, at I OR... I want my doctor to have the map of where right? he's going. Exactly. And so when you look at OR rooms, right, they're behind, you know, guarded entrances and secure doors and this. And so having, you know, four, eight-hour timeout values are reasonable when you look at all those compensating controls and the yeah. risk that's associated with that particular piece of equipment. So... And we just went through that same yeah. scenario, right? Could we please? Like, absolutely you can have four-hour timeout in your OR because if I'm laying there, right. I don't want the screen going dark either. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so what are, are there any sort of big projects that you're going to have coming out of these assessments that, that you know of already? Yeah. Yeah, we got a lot. I mean, all the typical stuff, right, that you would expect. Um, we need to deal with uh, BYOD in a big way. Um, you know, when we worked at Kaiser, our doctors were employed, and you could enforce MDM on their mobile devices. Um, at Censure, we have some employed doctors, and we have some that are not employed, right? So then MDM becomes a little more difficult when you're trying to, you know, put that onto somebody that already has an MDM based on the organization that they work with, right? So the, that conflict. So how do we give them access without caring, caring, caring about the device that they come into us with? Right. So, you know, we'll be looking at that more probably from, you know, containerization and, and application control more, sh- more so than device and device checking controls. Um, so we have to look at that from an interesting way. Um, one of the most wonderful things that I walked in 
to at Centura from my predecessor was um, a highly zero trust type um, deployment in that organization. So we have whitelisting deployed extensively nice. on on almost everything that we possibly can, can excluding medical devices right. that won't allow us, but some will. So oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly enough, that is surprising. some will. Yeah. Um, so so we have you know good protection. Things don't execute. Um, so we don't we're not chasing things from that standpoint. But I think we still have a visibility gap. So we'll be working on on the visibility piece. Um, make sure that that things are behaving in our organization the way we would expect them to behave. Um, we're good on the two-factor front, but we could do better on the privileged access management, so we will be working on some things there to shore that down. Um, and security awareness. Yeah. I think security awareness can be better, um, more touchy-feely. You know, that seems to work out well. We've got a lot of facilities. They don't see our face as much, so we'll probably go on some campaigns a couple of times a year in each of the facilities. So, so they know us. You're going to dig out those um, those old laptops back, back <laughs> from the, right. the Stone Ages and, that's right. and take those around and, and show oh, people how it's done? Gosh. Yeah, I don't think those same uh, right things back then would work today. And and, yeah. and I'm a little stale on, on uh, being a script kitty, so. <laughs> I, I would bet that some of them would still work today, as well, sad as that is. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right, right? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so things like that, improving vulnerability management and remediation governance, you know, getting a better risk view of things. Um, we didn't have a risk management practice before, so we're developing those, um, you know, to do more of the, the governance, the vulnerability management, the policy stuff. It was being yeah. done, but it was, you know, everybody had a little piece of the pie, and we're going to provide a little more concentration so I can get my metrics back and and start showing the pre pretty graphs to the board. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody likes to think um, about how cool and, and sexy certain parts of security are, but then you know, you come in and you, and you look at something, and you're like, oh, we we need to do all the unfun and yeah. and the people and process parts. You know, we we have to have better governance. We've got to have you know better policy, process, procedure, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. None of that, you know, shiny, blinky box, hacky stuff. We're, we're going to, you know, we got to do the things that, that can really move the needle. So. Yeah, yeah, right. If you had talked to me early in my career, yeah. I would have been on the, the blinky light side of things. Um, probably my big change was in the, um, uh, probably first data. You know, really working for the corporate organizations and really yeah. talking about risk management and governance and kind of what that can do to an organization as far as moving the needle, as you said, makes a big difference. For sure. Yeah. So I know one of the other things that you've been involved in in town is the, the Women in Security group here. Yep. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure most people know about that group and what it does, but why don't you uh, give us a little background and and some of the stuff that's been going on over there? Well, my involvement in women's insecurity, I have all thanks to you, Alex, <laughs> right? You introduced me to Sarah, so, and uh, um, she just really came in with through logarithms and, and said, hey, we did this out in Kansas City, would like to start it up here. You knew I had an interest in yeah. kind of that mentorship, and that really um, came from when I left Kaiser. Um, what I didn't realize there, you know, I'd mentioned before coming in as a principal and then be, being the deputy CISO, is when I chose to leave the organization to take on that full CISO role, was there were a lot of people, a lot of women especially, in the organization kind of keeping a pulse on me and my career there. Um, as someone to aspire to, to see somebody come in and go through and become an executive at the organization like that. Um, in a short amount of time, I think, you know, I, I didn't realize those people were, were paying attention. Right. Um, so I really did get a lot of feedback from folks and, you know, actually still chat with and, and mentor a lot of folks from there today. Um, and, and I've always liked the coaching part of things I've done, coaching things in my past for, you know, high school students and stuff like that. So 
um, coaching, mentoring, helping people develop a career, you know, what that looks like for them um, has always been an interest. So you introduced me to Sarah and, and you know, uh, a few months later we had our first women in security um, meeting and that was just a little over a year ago yep. um, that we did that. So we've been holding quarterly meetings ever since um, and really trying to give a place for women in cybersecurity just to come together and network a little bit and get to know each other. Um, that's really the primary goal of what we're doing so we try and make sure that we give them content that's relevant to their career and a little more tech focused and then the next meeting we might give them a little more content about how they grow their brand or you know same thing the blinky light thing and then right. <laughs> and then you know the other things that are a little more touchy-feely so um, so we've we've been doing that and been very successful I think you know our average attendance is in the 70 to 80s each meeting um, which I which I think says a lot for for the yeah. fact because there are so many competing things that that folks can do um, when it comes to attending after work events right for sure and it's and it's really hard when you know often you're a working wife or a working mother um, to be able to find time that you want to be able to do it with something that has a little bit of meaning and and whatnot so we've been trying to provide that Plus, we serve wine, so I think that helps. <laughs> <laughs> That's always good. Everybody likes wine. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's been really great opportunity um, to get to know some of our younger folks. Um, we've had a lot of interest and have been sponsoring um, some high school students uh, that uh, are participating in um, Cyber, pa Cyber Patriots. Yeah, right. And they're doing those gaming, um, trying to help them actually find internships yeah. uh, with organizations. Um, you know, we talk about a, a shortage when it comes to cybersecurity professionals. And, you know, if you have a willingness and you have some kind of talent or skill or knack for computers or cybersecurity, um, I don't see why we shouldn't foster that without the bachelor degree. Yes, right? for sure. And so we're working hard to kind of find avenues, um, companies that are willing, kids that are mature enough to come into the workplace. And I think that's where women in security come in is we really try and help vet to make sure that, you know, if you are taking a chance on a younger individual, you know, that they have some ability to carry themselves in a corporate environment. And then what we're really hoping to do is um, continue to provide that mentorship to that individual. So they're in here working for you, Alex, right? Yeah. And they might be too timid to ask some questions. So they always have us to fall back on and, and to be able to, to talk through um, whatever it is that they're going through as they're trying to adapt to you know being in a corporate environment and working a real nine to five type job. So, right. so it's, it's for women in security, I think it's that ability to provide that guidance, that mentorship, um, get their interest in and try and keep them engaged in cybersecurity, um, and and then you know help our community by building more and more folks that might be interested in the career field. Yeah, and the you know the internships are so important right now because we're at this weird time in our industry where th there's a bit of a catch twenty two I think mm -hmm. right. So it's we have this people keep saying there's this big um, skill shortage, right? We don't have enough people, we need more people to do all the stuff we want them to do. But then you look at even entry-level jobs that are supposed to be the bottom of the, the, uh, the ladder, right? This is where you start. And yet for those bottom-level jobs, they want people with experience. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, they, they want you to have done some security stuff before. So it's like, how do you get those entry-level jobs to get the experience? Um, if you need to have experience to get the jobs to get the experience. Yeah. Um, and and then with the internships, which is great, I, I've seen more and more pop up, but there's just only so many that are out there. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that they're super important. Um, you know, I've had interns the last couple summers and mm -hmm. it's been great. Um, but I think, you know, we need even more than that. So it's great to see that, that you guys are, are helping push that too. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think we as leaders, right, need to support it. It's, it can be inconvenient, I get that, right? And so maybe what we've talked about in Women in Security is for those organizations that don't have a program, to de deliver them something to follow, yeah. right? To build the content that says, you know, here's kind of the way that you bring in an intern and be able to make that meaningful for you without you having to reinvent the wheel and figure that out if you haven't gone through that process before. Right. Um, so really what we're trying to do is help build some tools to make it a little bit easier to, to go down that path because, yeah, we do need more folks, good folks. You know, yeah. you get them engaged early, get them interested early. Um, you know, hopefully they'll stick around for a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Or get them somewhere, you know, for someone else that, that needs that skill, right? So yeah. Uh, you know, I've had that, you know, my two interns that I had this past summer, both now have full-time jobs. That's wonderful. You know, so they, um, we didn't have a, a full-time spot here for them, but, you know, they stayed with us for the summer, got some experience, got real jobs, and now they're helping somebody else. So yeah. It's a great yeah. thing. It is a good thing. Yeah. So we are just about out of time. Um, anything else that you wanted to cover before we wrap this up? No, just been loving what you guys have been doing. Um, you know, uh, thanks for asking me to be a part of that. I, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it's uh, the Denver community. I appreciate a lot when it comes to, you know, supporting each other um, within this space, right? Yep. It's a pretty open, transparent community. You don't often find that. So it's fun to be a part of. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Nancy. Thanks. Appreciate you being here. Yep. And this has been Colorado Equals Security, and we will talk to you next time. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado Equals Security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.